Hello everyone, Stephen Gray here. You are tuned in to my relatively new, or actually at this point still quite new, uh, depending on when you see this, uh, YouTube channel called Stephen Gray Vision. That's Stephen with an S-T-E-P-H-E-N and capital G-R-A-Y, capital G and small R-A-Y uh, together, and then the separate word vision. And these um, interviews, which is primarily what they are going to be, are and are going to be, are also going to be uh, available as an audio podcast on Anchor. That's anchor.fm, A-N-C-H-O-R.fm. So uh, uh, there will be a visual component to this, of course, but some of you may be only hearing this on Anchor, and I will try to keep that in mind when I do something visual, like show the cover of Michael Stewart Annie's book uh, in a few moments, and that is my guest today. And uh, just before I introduce Michael, who you can see on the screen already with his beautiful white hat, um, I will say that the purpose of these interviews and the YouTube channel and the Anchor podcast altogether is to contribute in however small a way to a consciousness transformation on this planet, which many of us would agree is absolutely essential at this, at this particular time. And Michael uh, is very tuned into this, so um, th this is the main reason, or the reason why I wanted to interview Michael. I also know him personally. He spoke at our Spirit Plant Medicine Conference last year in 2019, and I have invited him back. I, I co-organized the conference, and I've invited him back again this year because he had so much of uh, essence, of great importance to say, and he said it with such aplomb and style that many people at the conference uh, considered Michael's presentation to be their number one favorite from this whole three-day conference. So, welcome, Michael. Welcome, Stephen. Pleasure to be here with you again. Excellent. And I'm going to read the introduction that's actually in the back of your book. And while I'm thinking of that, I'm just going to show the book on, on the screen here. And again, if you're listening to this on Anchor, one of those other audio platforms, you can't see this, but the book is called The Ghost Dance by Michael Stewart, S-T-U-A-R-T, and separate word, Annie, A-N-I. Uh, the subtitle of the book is An Untold Story of the Americas. And I just recently finished reading this book. So fascinating book that we're going to talk about some of the themes in the book. So um, here is the bio that's uh, the, about, the about the author section that's at the back of the book. From 1988 to 2002, after many years of jungle training, Michael Stewart Annie and his Amazonia Foundation became a central part of a medical outreach program introduced to fight the epidemics among the Yanomami tribe of Venezuela. In 1992, Michael co-won the, quote, Best of Festival from the U.S. Environmental Film Festival, Festival for Yanomami, Keepers of the Flame, which was about the struggle to stop the epidemics. For his efforts, Michael was made a member of the Explorers Club. He later directed a documentary for the Catalina Island Conservancy entitled Going Home, which told the story of the repatriation of some of the last genetically pure bison to the Lakota people. Annie lived in Mexico's remote Sierra Mazateca region of Oaxaca from the end of the 1960s through the 1970s and is the only outsider to have ever been allowed into the sacred cloud forests. He still returns to visit with his Mazatecan community to this day. 
Over the last 50 years, he has followed the rope of the dead from the tribes of the Amazon rainforest to the tribes of North America, tracking the missing steps of the ghost dance along the way. Well, I think, Michael, that uh, that little bio points to a number of the important issues that uh, uh, are at play here. So uh, let me think, where to start with this? Well, okay, we could start in anywhere, you know, lots of entry points here. So first of all, let me ask you this. What is the ghost dance and uh, why did you write this book? These are three questions. You can do whatever you want with them. What is the ghost dance? Uh, why did you write this book? And what is the relevance or importance of sharing that information at this time to a wider non-Indigenous public? Um, first to say, um, it's a wider and Indigenous because of my tens of thousands of followers, I have a huge Indigenous following. So the book is really for both Indigenous people and all people. Right. It's, not, it's not pointed to one audience per se. And the ghost dance historically was a revival movement in the late 1800s in the United States at the point where the tribes were pretty much disseminated and lost their culture. And it was portrayed through Western history as a last ditch effort to hold on to their heritage and culture. And the failure of it took place at Wounded Knee, which was the massacre of, of a ghost dance meeting. And its highlight was with the Paiute prophet Wavoka, who became the notorious symbol of the ghost dance from 1888 until 1890 when um, sitting bull was murdered for ghost dancing um, but by the U.S. government, but he actually was not a participant in the Wavoka style ritual. But what I do with the story is I take the ghost dance back to its roots thousands of years before to the Codex Borgia, one of the few ancient holy books that has survived the Inquisition and conquest of Mesoamerica. And in it is the image of the Lord Quetzalcoatl, the plumed serpent, dancing back to back with the ghost of the Lord of the Dead. And this ghost dance was supposed to be the birth of civilization in the Americas, from where the sacred mushroom grew was the sacrament that grew out of this ritual. And the third part was the ghost dance was a ritual that was supposed to fulfill itself long into the future when human beings would be the cause possibly of the destruction of the fifth world, which we now live in. And as a gift to humanity, Quetzalcoatl, the plume serpent, gave the ghost dance as the ritual that could save us at this time in history as we are in peril of destroying our own place in the weave of nature. Could you say a little bit more about what actually, okay, let me, actually, let me ask you this one. Um, how do you know that the ghost dance goes back so far? These were primarily oral cultures in general, right? Well, as, I know there are, you know, things carved in stone from the Maya and so on, but what is, what is the, um, the, the kind of um, uh, substance to, you know, what is, how do we know that, that these, um, the ghost dance goes back that far and is that ubiquitous or widespread? Um, the first thing is there were 17 holy books mm. that were pre-Columbian called codices and a codex for single, singular. 
and they survived the Inquisition. Just 17 books out of probably tens and tens of thousands. And the most famous is probably the Codex Borgia, named after the Borgia family related to the Pope, who ended up claiming it. And it's the only book that really breaks down the mythology and ritual belief system. It's it's really a book of a book of quote magic, ancient belief system of magic. And there in this book is the image of the ghost dance. And it is known by historians that the Codex Borgia was actually a book, a codex that had been rewritten, republished many times over thousands of years. That the one we have, which is probably was written about 500 years before the conquest was actually a lineage. So that's one way of knowing it. The other way of knowing it is that among the Masatec people and learning a great deal about their culture over the course of more than 50 years, I learned that this particular ritual was very key to their culture. So by learning in real time life that it was key to this particular culture that the book, the Codex Borgia, was probably written in this very region at what they call the Sky Temple, which they've recently found the runes of, by the way. Um, that's how its lineage goes back all that time. That it's actually not a stone carving. There's an actual book that has the pictures and a storyline in it. On what, on what kind of material or surface that would last it's that long? It's written on a combination of deer skin and um, maguey fiber, which is what they make mezcal out of. And the books still exist. The, the, um, the Vatican used to have it. I don't know who has it now. You mm. can get a copy of it in publication. Mm. And um, it's illustrated with pictographs. And pictographs were the Mesoamerican version of hieroglyphics. They're pictures almost have a cartoon quality to them, actually the quality that a indigenous person or someone who's entered that world would see if they were under the effect of the sacred mushroom in a ritual. It appears very much that way. I would very much guess that the people who wrote it literally were writing it from that place because it's so close that way. But it, it's an actual thing. The question historically, though, that you're raising is, is the picture of of the plume serpent dancing with the Lord of the Dead is a very known in archaeology, a known image. And archaeology through the years have claimed this is the sign of youth and age coming together. But if you look at their legs, they're actually dancing. And when you see the ritualistic symbols of their hams and their objects, this is quite obviously the ghost dance. He's literally dancing with the ghost of the Lord of the Dead. Mm -hmm. It's a okay. ghostly image. Right. So that brings up a question for me, kind of as a, you know, uh, self-appointed in this very moment representative of those of us uh, who do not know much about this. Uh, I'm a, a little ahead of most people having read your book, uh, of course, but uh, I guess the question I would have as a kind of a lay person is how how can dancing a dance uh, maintain a culture or maintain a connection to nature or spirit? What what actually potentially happens when it's done right? Great question. First part of the answer to that is 
in the indigenous um, cultures of the Americas, going from Alaska down to the tip of um, Tierra del Fuego, the whole thing, the word almost always, in every group I've been with, and I've been with quite a few groups, um, the word for ritual and dance is the exact same word. So when you say ghost dance, to dance with the ghost, to dance with the ancestors, you could as easily call it the um, ghost ritual. So it's an actual ritual. And like all things in Mesoamerica and in the way I wrote my book with three storylines going on at the same time, what goes on in the underworld, in the world we exist in, and the world of the spirits and how they interplay each other, all the codices were written that way. Um, you see that there's an actual ritual, but there also is an actual dance, as we see in the Codex Borgia, that they're dancing. So it's the ritual of communing with the ancestors to get their knowledge, because we have lived a short period of time, and they have lived or they've existed for a very long period of time. So... I personally believe one of the problems, as you brought up earlier, that modern culture is in right now, we've lost our ability to communicate with the ancestors, with nature, with the spirits of the elements. And that's why we're so lost. That's why right now with what's going on, especially in the United States and Brazil, I would guess to many people in other countries in the world, it's baffling how lost in a bad reality TV show we are because we no longer are connected to the things that will give us the knowledge to survive in the future. Hmm. So uh, what I'm hearing you say is that these quote-unquote ancestors, although they're not in corporeal form, material bodies, they are real. They exist. They are in a sense eternal and that they are contactable and also the implication it seems to me is not only are they contactable by people who have a deep connection already in certain kinds of indigenous cultures but ultimately at least ideally or potentially they can be in the right circumstances contacted by many people from many different kinds of cultures correct um yeah you touched on a few very important points um they're not eternal per se, because you can kill ancestral spirits, which the Yanomami call shipuri. You can kill them by killing their spirit animal. And if you kill, it's in the traditions of the tribes. If you kill me, I die, but my spirit can follow my nakwal my spirit animal back into existence. But if you kill my spirit animal, I am completely removed from the wheel of returning to life. So they're not quite eternal. They live on unless they are their spirit animal, their Nagual is destroyed. And yes, there are people in the tribes. And this, I think, is one of the big confusions going on now because in the tribes, it's not the whole tribe and we've got 300 shamans in a village and everybody's doing it. People in the forest need to be busy all day, every day, just to survive. They don't have the situation like us. Well, let's take a few weeks off or a day off. No, they got to keep going. So 
specific people who are not called upon by the tribe, but by the spirit, and the tribe recognize it, they become the bridge that brings that knowledge to the tribe. And the same thing goes for our culture. I do not believe that all people who have dealt with emotional problems, searched their souls, found an awareness, got over fear of death, all the many great things we're discovering, like from the work of John Hopkins with psychedelics that are really helping people in the modern world deal with problems of the modern world. Um, here too, it will not be everybody, whoa, I read a book, I put on a shaman hat, I sing a Kenny Loggins song, and wow, I'm in touch with the spirits. It'll be the same thing. There'll be very few people who do it, who communicate it. But to answer the end question, I think we are right at the point where if we do not reestablish this link with the elements of nature, we're headed on a path to um, destruction of the human species because let's face it, we're really, we're part of nature, but we're really out of our place in nature. We're all over the place at this point. And the problem with civilization is civilization sets in one place. So if you're a nomad, like Forrest Gump, you know, people in the old days could run across 3,000 miles like it was nothing. They did it all the time. But for civilization to exist, which was Quetzalcoatl's gift to us, um, you have to have the sun and the rain and the moon and, and the wind working together. You can have a lot of sun and a lot of rain, but it'll just cause droughts and floods if they're not in the right pattern. And that pattern of nature, I think we've all agreeing, is completely disrupted right now. So we have to find a way to communicate with that force, whether it's esoterically or scientifically direct, to communicate with that source so we can get a feeling for working with nature again. And I think COVID virus has really, the pandemic has really brought up to us how out of whack with that we are and how dangerous it is that we don't start to create that bridge and relationship again. So I had asked you a few moments ago about this issue about the ancestors and the quote realness uh, of them, and uh, in your book and also you know sprinkled here and there in your conversation so far today, you've made reference to Quetzal. I never, never know if I get it pronounced. Quetzalcoatl. Thank you. Nobody says it right, so so it doesn't matter. You call him the plume serpent. <laughs> right, and. Um, you know, and other, other uh, whatever you might call spirits, Lord of the Dead, Lord of Days, different ones like this. So what I always wonder, again, coming from this kind of culture where we have not been taught and conditioned in that way, and we tend not to see or experience these kinds of quote-unquote spirits, is uh, are they, how real are they? I mean, would uh, hundreds of people, thousands of people all uh, connect with the same independent entity, if you will? Very great point. Again, one of the big differences about what's taking place in the US, Canada, Europe, and what's still taking place with intact indigenous cultures is if you're in a village in the Amazon, a real a remote village and uncontacted where people are still in that world, and a ceremony is going on, a ghost dance or any other ceremony, it's uncanny how 
everybody in that village, even who's not taking part, is on the exact same page. Now, me and you both may be in that village, and you said, well, the vision looked to me like a giant ear. And I'd say, well, to me, it looked like a giant trunk. We're both seeing an elephant. We're seeing it a little different from our vantage point. It's the same. When Westerners do it, let's say you have a room of 30 people paying for an ayahuasca ceremony. You've got 30 different people spinning in their own individual universe. They're not connected. And the obvious reason is in the village, those people grew up their whole life together. They know no one else except each other. They're all related for generations back. They deal with each other all day long. So they really are woven together. It's not just a metaphoric thing. So the plant works that way. So yes, within their culture, I, I have no question. I started out as a person where um, my family were great believers in non-belief. They, many of them had been murdered in situations with the church and all. And so they were very much so. I was not your, whoa, let me get on the spirit thing. Or I was, I was really a doubter. But I saw and experienced so many incredible things that there's no doubt, as I've joked, that what I've seen, only a blind man and a fool wouldn't believe after what I've seen. You know, um, it's very, to me and to those people, it's extremely real. And I'll give you a little insight in that that's so curious, which is, and I spoke about this with Dennis and Wade on his show, that each of these plants has a certain song and it has a voice. And let's say, two i and three medicine men from the jungle 20 years apart had an experience if we sat down together our experience would be the same it would be the same spirit everyone in the back country not in wotla which has been christianized and evangelized for 70 80 years now at least right more than that but in the back country where really right now, it's just that time of change where my ranch is in the back country, the road electricity is just barely coming now. It hasn't reached my ranch, but it's close. I got neighbors who got electricity at this point, you know, so it's really changed. But in the old days, not just me, I came to know Dishito all on my own per se because um, Carlos Castaneda created a great um, fib that people love in the modern world that you find a shaman and that shaman makes you their apprentice and you study in apprentice school and then you're a shaman. In the, there's nowhere in indigenous culture I've ever seen that ever happen to take place. And Roy Stone, who's probably one of the greatest medicine men in America, greatest healer, laughed when he was asked if I was his apprentice to um, Indian country newspaper. He said, very good friend, very good friend. No, apprentice, no, because there's no such thing. If a plant or an entity takes you on, your relations with them and the quote medicine people, they kind of block and keep you there so you can have that personal relationship with it. But the crazy part is that the song and the relationship in the being is all the same. 
everyone in the old days and still some now in the back country of the Masateka. It's not just me who made Dishitu in my head. It's my voice talking to me and it's really my extended being. No, they all believe in this exact same being, Dishitu. Right. So that brings up a few questions for me. Uh, we we kind of skipped ahead a little for, you know, the sort of 101 level, I guess you could say. Uh, uh, we were talking about the ghost dance, or you were prim prim primarily you were talking about the ghost dance, of course, and its importance and its relevance and its ancient history and its widespread uh, connections and so on and so on. And then you uh, ca casually, more or less, uh, threw in the word plant. And so, uh, for people who don't know much about this, uh, how did how did that get in there? Okay, let me put it this way: uh, um, How um, you know universal or widespread, uh, and perhaps I could ask how necessary is the ingestion of a medicinal plant, a psychoactive or visionary or healing teaching plant, for making these kind of connections with the spirit spirits. Fantastic question. Um, the first time I ever heard of the ghost dance in my life, I was not legal age. It was from the Lakota sage, John Fire Lame Deer, who I was very close with at that time when I was a kid. And um, he said to me, more or less a quote, actually, he said, there is no politician or the scientist they pay to make their lies seem true that can get human beings out of the mess we're heading into. Only the ghost dance can do that. But we Indian people, his terminology, have lost the way. And I went off at that point. He sent me off to search for the steps of the ghost dance. And of course, we went through Wembleche. He took me on spirit quest. Um, I saw a vision. The vision was very obvious to go to back to Mexico and search there. Um, but I thought I was like the least worthy candidate on earth for this. And why would I even do this? I didn't really even believe in it, you know. And what I found in my journey, that it was the tribes that had an theogenic plant, such as the Huicholi with peyote, um, the Mazatec with the mushroom, um, the Pieroa with ayahuasca, that these were the tribes that had retained in general the missing steps to the ghost dance. But not to say, Lame Deer, who was a rosebud brule Lakota, um, the brule don't take any plant per se, except what they smoke in their pipe and they don't smoke tobacco. They make a very special mixture with white willow and red willow and other things like that. But in general, they see their visions through the sun dance, through a neepy sweat. Um, but in general, in my journey, where I found the pieces to the ghost dance, which are called the tapuni, um, they were among tribes that cultures remained more intact because they had that plant. Fascinating. Yeah, indeed. So uh, you also mentioned, uh, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, Dishitu? Very, very close. There's a little on the front, it's Adishitu. Oh, okay. <laughs> but you did, you did better than most, believe me, Stephen. Okay. Uh, so in the, in your book, in the Ghost Dance book, uh, you say something like this, that a long time ago, maybe 40 years ago, I believe you can correct. Let me finish uh, just rambling here, and then you can correct anything I didn't quite get right here, please. Uh, you say something about 
uh, how you had an encounter with, uh, and I think I'm going to ask you to explain a little bit about who Dishi Tu is, but you had a, an encounter, I believe, in the embrace of, an, of a mushroom journey, a psilocybin mushroom journey, with a particular um, deity or spirit with this name that I'm almost pronouncing correctly, DC2, uh, and that DC2 actually, in a sense, took you under his or its wing, so to speak, and uh, tasked you with uh, coming to terms or understanding, well, actually, you refer to yourself in the book several times as DC2's scribe, and uh, if I understood it correctly, uh, DC2 charged you with the responsibility of uh, taking notes, as it were, uh, as as he or it uh, more or less taught you or told stories about the history of the ghost dance, and and then you have had encounters with this uh, this entity or spirit periodically over the years, even relatively recently, and that was kind of your life's work almost, although you obviously have done other things, but you've spent 40 years, uh, in a sense, pursuing the rope of the dead, which I think was is also a term that's going to require some explanation. Take it away, please. <laughs> yeah, um, very close. First of all, to clear up Dishitu. Dishitu, first of all, it's questionable if it has any psilocybin in it whatsoever. So it's it, a mushroom? It, yeah, yeah. Is it it's actually a mushroom? It's an, oh, it's an actual mushroom that only grows that place in the world. I've seen Paul, who stands, who's done great work and really shocks me of how many categories. But I myself in the Masateca found over 127 different varieties of psychotropic mushrooms. So, you know, there's a wide variety here, as, as Paul has made that point very well, far better than I could. Um, but this particular one does not bleed blue like a psilocybin mushroom. And the effects of it are much more a feeling of possession. When you eat dishitu, um, you feel like you're possessed and something else is inside your body and is in you until it dies and is digested and then you come back to you again. I've never per se had that experience with psilocybin at all. It's a very different experience. And it brings up the point that in Wotla, where people have gone for years now to trek to find the sacred mushroom, the magic mushroom, the industry of Wotla sells them a cubensis sanicedro mushroom, which grows in cow pie dung or in sugar cane or in an agar thing, people grow it. So the reality is this mushroom was never in the new world until Europeans came with Brahmin cattle and sugar cane. So it's not part of their ancient culture. And in fact, I would say as close as 20 years ago, there were no Masatec that I knew that eat the psilocybin mushroom that people go and take now as their mushroom journey. And I w just want to say, I'm not taking anything away from that mushroom. And I would like to say that because it usually grows in the dung of Brahmin cows, that mushroom probably originated in Egypt or in India. So it may have a whole other sacred history that we're not aware of, but it has nothing to do with the Americas. I'm an Americanist. I'm an American guy, right? My thing's America. I've been a lot of places. 
place in the world, but I'm American. And I don't mean the United States, America. I mean America from where you are to the Amazon, the Americas. We're all Americans. Um, and DC2 also is very, very difficult to find in very small quantities. So it could never be a commercial quantity. So the people there who were extremely poor, um, Julietin, people like that, invented a culture which they actually took from the hippies who came there in the 70s and kind of spun it into the new Mazatecan culture that most people and even some anthropologists actually believe is authentic Mazatec folklore, but only for the last 20 years. Before that, it has no relevance in there whatsoever. So the uh, the um, iconography, those uh, drawings that you described as almost cartoon-like, they're sprinkled quite liberally throughout your ghost dance book, um, and I, I really enjoy, I really love them actually. They're so detailed, you know, they're quite lovely. Uh, many of them have uh, some mushroom iconography in them. Someone's holding a mushroom or whatever. Yeah. So do you know what kind of mushrooms those would have been? Oh, there's no question. That's digital. No, that's Dishitu. The Masatec in the old days, there's a few varieties of Dishitu, and the two most famous ones among the people there have actually gone extinct already. Mm. The, the incredible version, which is a mushroom that grows huge and it's translucent, it's like, it looks like it's from another world. It's unbelievable looking. Um, they said when they cut down the cedar trees in the forest, they stopped growing there. So... DC2 is vanishing. The last year when we went to look for them, it took three villages over 100 people over a month, including myself and my wife, searching to find them for our ghost dance. So they're really becoming something extremely rare. And is this here's them? one of the varieties of Dishitu. That's one there, if people can see that, who are um, encountering this on YouTube. This there way. you go. A little bit up, Stephen. A little bit high. There you go. Go up. There you go. Perfect. There we go. Yeah. Okay. There we go. Yeah. Oh. And um, and as you see in there, you can't see the picture, but you would see there's no blue bleeding on it. Now, I'm not quite sure that there's no psilocybin in it. I, I'm not saying that, but I am saying it, it's a very different mushroom. The effect is very much a possession by Dishitu. And even um, Maria Sabina who um, who was extremely evangelized and Catholic and lived in the city, lived in Walden, no longer lived in the country. Um, and I knew very well. Um, she, even if you really read what she, what was written about her, what she said and all, she very much said, no, this is something totally different. And a great confusion has taken place in the psychedelic world over this, where people have said, that when R. Gordon Wasson, who I also knew, um, came there on one of his later experiences, not the first one, he brought her a psilocybin tablet from um, um, Albert Hoffman from Sandoz, and she took it, and the quote they give is, oh, she said, it's the exact same thing as the mushroom, which I spoke to her personally about this, and that's not at all what she said. That was twisted. What she said was she made it very clear that the minute the foreigners started to eat them, 
the mushroom lost its voice and no longer spoke to the Mazatec people. It was basically an experience of a, a journey, a trip, whatever you want to call it. But she believed it had totally lost its entity power. And the point she was making was the trip experience is very similar to the pill. But she in no way implied that the true Dishitu was like a pill at all because she said outright that it lost its voice the minute the people who brought the pill came, right? So that's the confusion we perpetuate when we're trying to sell our Western view on an indigenous subject. It always gets a little lopsided. It's, it's a tricky thing to do. You got to really know the culture well, not through books have first-hand experience with it. So to the people there, Dishitu is not necessarily a good thing. There are many on what they call Tichek, which are witches, people who fight with each other to take power, people who purses on each other, who also use different forms of Dishitu because the Masatek do not take the mushroom at all for the reasons that people do now. I've never known them to take it for self-discovery or to feel nirvana or to evolve to a psychedelic awareness. It's, they do it for healing. They do it to commune with the spirits I talk about in the book in very particular way and very particular mushrooms for each spirit, by the way. It's not the same ritual for each. It's very intricate that way, like the pictographs are. So, um, it, within the culture there, um, yes, this spirit dishitu is not um, something that my personal experience, my alter ego, it's what everybody there saw. And by the way, they never told me about it. I experienced it firsthand with dishitu. And after many years sitting around with the old folks, they were like, Oh, so you really do know what's going on here, you know? So, um, yeah, it's a fascinating thing. One more point about it. In my book, the actual mushroom is called Atishito. But the spirit that talks to Atishito has a different name, but I'm not allowed to say that name. So I use in the book the name Dishitu. I took a little poetic license with that because it's against my belief system in theirs that I utter the, that name. Very respectful. Thank you to, for sharing that kind of attitude about these things because I think that's one of the, uh, one of the issues that are these uh, young, so to speak, cultures of ours uh, that are working with these substances uh, need to go deeper much deeper within our understanding in terms of respect and connecting with the spirits and so on. So I could ask you a, something about that and where we are now, but I also want to make sure that I, that something else that I, a phrase, a term that I encountered in the book is a few times that I want to get your understanding or clarity on that one a little bit, uh, and that is the prophecy of the seven generations. And you never actually detailed in the book, as I recall, what that actually is. I, I do, yeah. Well, you did. Uh, oh, I don't remember you specifically, um, you know, yeah. elaborating on it. But so the question is, for me anyway, and perhaps for, uh, you know, hopefully for people watching this and listening to it, is uh, what is it? And what is its relationship to the ghost dance and what is its relevance right now for the wider world? Right. The prophecy of seven generations, once again, became famous in Canada and the United States at the time of the great um, 
demise, as we say, of the indigenous culture in North America. And it was a prophecy that was believed to say that in seven generations, in fact, um, the great crazy horse, the prophet crazy horse used the term that set, this is for our generation, seven generations from now. But what I discovered once again in my research with this, in the Mishtek language, which is the Masatek is part of the greater Mishtek group, the number seven actually means generations. So I believe that it's the very old prophecy that started with the ghost dance and all. And what it is, is seven generations is when the tree of life, which is suffering and dying through events that humans learn and begin to understand, they bring the tree of life back to life. And by bringing the tree of life back to life, we basically, in a very simple term, stop the coronavirus, stop the storm of pandemics that are hitting our way. Corona is, is a, 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 um, a vanguard virus. There's tons of stuff coming our way behind that. We're entering the time of um, pandemic storms. If we don't watch ourselves, we're already in it. We're not entering it. So the ghost dance is the ritual that is done to fulfill the prophecy of generations, which is the number seven. And what that to me means differently is I learned from Dishitum and from people in the Amazon that to them, the tree of life is not an arboreal tree. This is right up Paul Stavitz's alley all the way. It's that mycelian network that, as Paul has pointed out at one time, probably connected all the Americas together. The interesting thing I point out in the book is we all like to point the finger at the conquistadors and they came and destroyed everything. But to the belief in generations and seven generations, when they built the pyramids, when they built these great cities to the gods that we love, this was already the spiritual fall of their culture because all those roads and buildings all started to destroy that mycelia and break it up under the ground. So the breaking up of the mycelia, the beginning of the prophecy of seven generations started way before the conquistadors and the Europeans came to the Americas. Mm -hmm. So um, I'd like to kind of bring us into the present moment. And uh, I could ask this question in a couple of different ways. I'm sure you will have something to say about it. One way is, uh, uh, okay, here's, let, let me throw it two, two or three different ways to, uh, to ask this question. And you can sort of pick one or, or riff on it however you want. Uh, one is uh, Terrence McKenna, uh, back in his heyday of the 80s and so on, uh, for a while, uh, gave an annual address he called the State of the Onion Address. In other words, onion being layers peeled away, of course, and, you know, how are things going that way? Another way of putting it is you were at, uh, you spoke at the 2019 Spirit Plant Medicine Conference, as I mentioned earlier, and uh, one of the other speakers was Jamie Wheel, who has a lot to say about the unfolding of the psychedelic renaissance or psychedelic culture, much of it critical to the way things are going. Um, but, I, you know, I would say uh, for anyone paying any attention to what Jamie Wheel has to say that in my view anyway the reason he was so uh, had sharpened his blade so much uh, to cut through the delusions of the psychedelic culture was that he he does believe 
uh, not only in the power and potential of these medicines, but their uh, necessity for this kind of consciousness transformation. So, so again, the question is, uh, from your point of view, okay, so the third aspect or way that I might sort of toss in a little spice into that soup that I just started to throw at you there is how um, hopeful or optimistic are you that we are going to get the message uh, you, you know, in the in the years to come, in the, you know, 5, 10, 20, 30 years to come, because you and many other people, including myself, would agree, I'm sure, that there's no time to lose. Yeah, um, first of all, um, Wade, myself, and Jamie had a great discussion at the, at the conference in Vancouver. We had a wonderful and and Jamie's a very articulate voice. And I think your opinion and mine, I like, I like to live, whether I agree with Jamie on everything or not, he has great insight into it and he's very studied in the subject and I very much appreciate him. Um, and I think, I, you know, I'm a hopeful guy. My oldest friend on earth, who was Maria Sabina's first cousin, had a great saying and he used to say, still says it, um, Hope is the salt of life that makes everything taste better. Mm -hmm. So I'm a great believer in hope because it just makes life. Without hope, life is just a rough road. I've dragged myself in the jungle where I was so sick and beat up. I laid down on the ground and wanted to die. And it was just more painful laying on the ground, getting bit by the ants. So I stood up again and decided I wasn't going to die and, and kept walking. And I think it's a little bit of a metaphor where we're at today. I actually have hope of our coming to terms with this. And DC2 has made it very clear to me over many years that things, amazing things, crazier and more amazing that have happened are going to happen. And people will be amazed how this is turning out. And of course, DC2 has said this many times that Death is in our contract. We're all going to die. So uh, Westerners, oh, people could die. Well, people are dying all the time. That's what we do, you know. Um, so I don't think the fear factor of that, it's how you die, how you suffer. I think that's more to me and my personal thing, what I think about more than just I know I'm dying. There ain't no question about it. So I, I'm not saying that there's not going to be hard times. There's not going to be destruction and death. But according to Dishi too, um, he says, we're going to get through this one. And I'll say another strange thing about Dishi too. one of the strangest things. Over the years, he has told me really wild, wild things that there was no way I could conceive at the moment that this would ever be true. And the strange thing about him is he loves to talk in great detail. He loves to give names, dates, locations, things. There's no way on earth I would know this information. There was nowhere I learned it. And I'll go, you know, this was the one time DC2 wasn't right. 30 years later, there it'll be right in front of my face, exactly what he said. So this has been very moving to me, his incredible insight. And, and he, he is a he. You know, not a human he, but he is a male entity in this case. He calls himself a he in this case. Um, once again, to point this out, in the indigenous world, very different than what we do in the States. Um, in the indigenous world, by its physical shape, things are either male or female. 
And I'm not saying this is right. This is the culture. So a mushroom that's very phallic is actually male. A peyote bun, which people have been, well, Carlos Castaneda invented this whole mescalito thing, which is ridiculous because it was a German scientist that came up with the name mescaline in, in the late, in, I think in the early century, in 1919, they synthesized it. And so obviously Indians in Mexico would not know the word mescalito. In Mexico, mescalito is un trago de mezcal, a little drink of mezcal, the liquor. It is, so things get twisted, right? But I very much believe that we're going to find a way out of this. And I don't think any of us, and me included, it's not like, well, I know the secret I'm not telling. I'm clueless as everybody else, except for the fact he has proved to me over and over again that he knows what's going on with this. And there are female entities very much involved. In fact, his entity is subordinate to Coquique, which is basically Mother Earth, who in the belief system of this, or Pachamama, for us, Coquique, um, she's the one, this is her ball game, this is her stadium, this is her show. Beautiful, yeah. Well, uh, I'm sure I could come up with a lot more questions. Well, you know, that that's kind of a, you know, you know, we've led somewhere, I think, with this conversation, but maybe stepping back since you know, I, I'd like to keep it under an hour if possible, but we're still 10 or 15 minutes from that point. And, uh, and so there's a, there were a couple of other things that I was wondering about that I'd, I think people might appreciate you elaborating on. And one of them is, uh, uh, you know, it comes back to this question that, you know, that our cultures don't really have much of a grasp of, again, is the reality of the non-material world or the non-human world, for that matter, and the intelligence, so to speak, also, of Ooh. nature, you know. And you've made reference several times to talking plants. So you've, you've talked about that a bit in this conversation, but you also said somewhere in the book, I think, that they talk to each other. Uh, and uh, is that the sort of spirits that you're talking about? from these plants talking to each other? Or could a you give bit, us the 101 on that one a little bit too? Yeah, well, this, this is 101, once again, hit the ball right at Paul, um, <laughs> is that mycelia network, which I believe he's referred to it, is almost like a, a web internet for plants of how they communicate minerals and things one group needs to, over great distances to the other ones that need that mineral or something. And they pass it through the knowledge and the substance, goes through this underground mycelia. It actually moves through that. So that's how the plants communicate. When you take, let's say, in my opinion, when you eat peyote or a psilocybin mushroom or something of the like here, what you're actually experiencing is you're tapping in to the plant world's internet. You're tapping into their network. You don't know the language. You don't know protocol and procedure, but that's the sounds and the experiences and the feeling of what you're doing. And what I've learned over many years, it's not about reading a book and go meeting butterfly spirit person in Santa Fe, and now you're a shaman, but dedicating your life to this path. I know for me, I'm a linguistics guy. I've learned many languages in my life. I've had to, to travel the way I have. And the Chinese gave me a really rough time. I never could learn Chinese, although I spent time there for whatever reason. I love China, but I had a rough time with that language. Um, 
the language Dishitu has a particular language. It is not Masatek. So when people come here and go, oh, I'm doing a classic Masatek Velada, and basically what I've noticed they do, they sing Catholic, you know, Jesus loves me, yes, I know, and this type of thing in Masatek. And the white people in the States go, did you hear that? That's Masatek. Oh, I'm trembling. It's not the voice of Dishitu. Going to a meeting and listening to New Age or Mood Music or Kenny Loggins or Mescalito or any of this has nothing to do. Their language is a tonal language. And that's why, if you'll notice, I've had people say to me, oh, you just chant like a Lakota. And I'm like, I've chanted plenty with the Lakota, but I'm chanting in Yanomami because these languages all through the Americas, when you go into that world, the chants, the tonal parts, very, very similar. And what these spirits hear, they don't hear the, hear the chromatic Western scale that was not around in their world. Now, I love modern music, but that's not it. It's the and I would say probably, I don't know this as well, but I would believe in Indian Tibet, it's this way with Om and all. It's the... It's the tonal change that is in these plant languages. And it took me over 14 years to learn the language of Dishitu. It took me over 10 years to learn the language of ayahuasca. So these things have an actual language. And what's curious to me, one of the most curious points here is the whole psychedelicness, the psychedelic paintings, the things evolving like an onion in and out of each other and, you know, plasticine spirits with looking glass eyes and all this <laughs> stuff. That's the, that's the carnival sideshow these plants use to keep the unaware initiate at a distance. They dazzle them with their footwork, so to speak, where you're like, wow, the colors. The people who get into it, the tribal people and all, you have a minute or two of that the most, and you go right through that to being in the presence of this spirit or some other spirit that it's brought in. It's not always Dishitu. When you go in the world, it's... Many words, that's another thing different than the Western concept. In their concept, when you leave this reality, um, there's not one path, one reality. There's billions of them like stars, right? It's not, oh, no, you go this way towards purgatory, then heaven's at the next bus stop. It's not set up that way. So um, it's the actual languages of these things where the real relationship is. And that's nothing anyone's going to learn in a year or by taking ayahuasca every weekend and it's going to fill in the blanks. Because quite typically what I've learned with friends of mine, some of them are friends of both of ours that have really seriously experimented with it for many years. They all say it comes to a point where it gets really rough and they got to kind of stop because a one friend of mine, a very famous painter, you and I both know, said to me, she said, all of a sudden, my ayahuasca trips were a butcher shop. It was just body parts and blood and limbs. I said, funny, that's what happens to the Indians if they abuse it too. Um, in the jungle, something I've learned very curious that when you're with really uncontacted or marginally, marginally contacted people, they only use the, the sacrament plants in very particular and specific ways. And as they get closer to the anthropologists or the missionaries, they start taking it more and more. 
it becomes a drug that they're trying to fight off this thing that's taking them over contact with the Western world. So in the culture, to take it over and over and over again is not at all the way, that's, that's truly a Western phenomena. I typically do it three times a year, every year for half a century. And unless someone's really sick or someone's dying or there's an epidemic and I don't know what I'm doing and I need help, I never play around with it. I never go to my wife, oh, um, I'm having a really bad time and I'm questioning myself. So I think I'm going to go eat dishi too and see if he can set me straight. Mm. It's not used that way. That's our way to use it, or Western world's way, not my way in particular. They, I've never, you know, no one said it better than Wade. You know, we were sitting there at the conference and a guy got up and he was saying, oh, you know, I take ayahuasca and I hit nirvana and this great love and awareness takes over me. And Wade leads over and goes, God, that's a lucky guy. When I took it, you know, it was like sucking on a she jaguar's tit and then get thrown into a pit of serpents. I said, well, that's kind of close. Not exactly my thing, but closer to the story. So these are the bridges that I really believe, I think that's the reason why I'm here, because in all truth, if there wasn't a reason, I'd be down on the ranch in Oaxaca or in the Amazon. I wouldn't, this is not really my world. So I'm here kind of visiting, right? Um, so I think it's our purposes to be a bridge, as I must mentioned to you, we talked in depth about on a, on a personal level about what would it take to bring real medicine people, real baichis and shaburis and hikara from the jungle? And it's impossible. They don't have passports. They don't speak the language. They see a white people. They think they're giant larvae. They, you know, they can't grasp the situation at all. And there's very few of that era that Wade and I came out of. Wade's a little bit younger than me. Um, we're kind of the last guys. Most of the people are long dead. Shagnon dies. They've all gone away pretty much. So we're kind of, to me, that bridge because what I have found is almost, and I've known a lot of them, almost all the, quote, medicine people that have come here and made a um, business out of this. I don't think one of them would come close to being considered a medicine man by their own culture. They got their little shaman card. They're 28 years old. No, when you're in these places, the people who are teaching you are 104 years old, or they've lived 40, 50 years on the same path, 60 years. They're not, they're something very different. So we're kind of it's that questionable cultural appropriation. Of course, you've got to absorb and make it your own. That's the way things work. But how much, as you say, Stephen, true respect do you pay to this thing while you're doing it? In my case, it's not at all that I'm an enlightened being. In my case, it's purely stark raving terror and fear. Because I've seen... It's always dazzled me. I meet these people who run what I call psychedelic hustles. And the spirits in the plants never seem to beat them up. If I'm in, you know, if I'm in the Alto, the Siapa River Basin in the Amazonas or in the Masateca, and I score around it all and I break one little rule of the rules of it, they torture me unbelievably. They beat the heck out of me. So I'm very, you know, um, austere and on the point. 
because I'm afraid because I don't want to get hurt. And you've got this living entity inside your body. It can hurt you. These things are dangerous. These mm -hmm. things are not completely benign by any stretch of the imagination. And are they good by any stretch of imagination? As I said before, there's many sorcerers, in fact, among the tribe that's one of the most famous to bringing it to the United States, the Shwa, part of the Hebrew nation, in their actual culture, one of the primary uses of ayahuasca was to see who killed a relative of yours so you can take vengeance on them and cut off their head and make tansa and have a shrunken head. You know, they had a very different system about it. So there's a, if people, I think what I'm hoping for with this, what Jamie, this is my conversation with Jamie, what I'm hoping for is things will happen. Nature will slap us around like Mother Nature is doing now to a place where people will get past their thing and will start to really see that um, there's more involved than the amazing part of giving it to people with cancer or mental illness in a form and putting visors on them and playing new age music in a very safe thing. I guess set and setting is a big word. I hear it, the events in all that. And what I say is they're set and setting, but what I'm talking about is way past set and setting. Set and, it's not that you're in the jungle, so you're having this experience. No, you're in the jungle and it's helping to set you up, but the experience is very valid to its own, way beyond set or setting. It's real. Well, that's a mouthful, or two, or three, or four. <laughs> I got going there. <laughs> and I think we, uh, I think you've successfully scared off the squeamish. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you've also, uh, the way I'm hearing it, have in a sense set the bar high and set a task, you know, because as you said uh, 10 or 20 minutes ago, you're hopeful. So, and as far as I'm concerned, that's the only reason why I'm doing this kind of thing with people like you is because I am hopeful and there's no point in doing it otherwise, you know, like who, who needs to be told that, you know, we're heading for doom and disaster, you know, with no redeeming uh, breakthrough from that at all. There does need to be a radical shift of consciousness and a deepening of understanding of our relationship to nature and spirit, of course. But, uh, you know, that is the reason for doing these kinds of things. So um, I'm really grateful that you're with us, Michael, and that you're sharing these kind of things. And I'm going to say thank you and goodbye in a minute. But before I do that, I want to make sure that uh, if anyone, uh, if you're open to being contacted or if you want people to check anything out, please say so. And for those people that are watching it on YouTube or um, a video, a visual medium, I'll put up little tabs that, you know, right. show, uh, the, you know, put in writing for them. But the people on um, audio podcast are going to have to remember what you say. So what do you want to tell people about that? Um, first of all, um, I have a new foundation because I have two big projects. One, I have a project in the Amazon. I believe having gone through 14 years fighting epidemics with the Anamami, I actually know what is needed to get out of this incredible problem we're having in Amazonas right now. And at the moment, it's very tricky because there's a lot of well-meaning people, but all I see them doing is throwing mud at the wall and seeing what sticks with a situation with pandemics and multiple epidemics, you need a real strategy and game plan or you're not going to win. 
and I'm going to be, I will send you a copy. I'm going to put it out for everybody of, I've written an eight page protocol of how to fight the epidemics and it'll be at my new foundation, um, Talking Plants. My old, fashion, my old foundation, Amazonia Foundation is kind of standing somewhat in retirement. It was just easier to create a new foundation for this. In Mexico, we've started another thing called El Jardín de Corrección, in English, um, the Healing Garden. And what we're doing is, um, and we're going to be fundraising for this, so I'm glad for the opportunity. We're creating soil through composting through the indigenous markets, the, the fruit and vegetable refuse thrown away. And in that soil, each village is going to have seeds to grow their own medicinal garden that can help them in times of epidemic with plants such as Artemisia new plants from their own culture, because most of the tribes I know don't have any medical help outside whatsoever. And most of that medical help when it comes doesn't really work for them. It's got to be in a way they am. And so there's that site coming up. My main thing every week, I do a video on Instagram called The Ghost Dance is my handle. And I do about a three, four minute talk about all these different subjects we're talking about there. And of course, Michael Stewart, I need my website where you can reach me. And those are my main places to find me. Excellent. So. Again, uh, I'm, I'm deeply impressed with what you've learned uh, over the course of your life, Michael, and the work that you've done for people. Uh, you were probably too humble to think of yourself as a bodhisattva, but I think of you as a bodhisattva for people completely unfamiliar with that term. Does that mean jungle guide by any twist? Because that's what I look at myself as a jungle scout. <laughs> Maybe that's a bodhisattva in a different way. Well, the, the, the Buddhists, the Tibetans and such, they have this term bodhisattva. Bodhi means awake and sattva. Sattva means uh, one journeying on the way to awakeness, but the bodhisattva is typically thought of as someone who has woken up enough and has enough of an awakened heart, as they say, that he or she is dedicated to serving the people, you know, dedicating to help, dedicated to helping, dedicated to, you know, yeah, just that, serving. I'd be very honored to have that label. I, I That's very, thank you very much. Okay. So I'm going to say thank you and goodbye at this point, but I would ask you to just hang around for a minute after I stop the record button so we can have a little post uh, post recording chat for a couple of minutes okay as we always do all right thank you again